Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, and today I'm excited. One of my good friends is here, Dr. Jennifer Lang. Welcome aboard. Hi, Elliot. How are you? I'm so excited to have you here. That's how I am. Um, I loved working with you when you were a practicing OBGYN, and mm-hmm. I cried the day you stopped. <laughs> uh, but you've been doing amazing since things since then, including a recent book that you wrote, The Whole Nine Months, A Week-by-Week Pregnancy Nutrition Guide, uh, which is all about prenatal nutrition. And in, in addition to having incredible information in there, it's just gorgeous to look at. Every page makes me want to eat healthy stuff. Thank you. That was actually the idea. Is you know We didn't want something black and white and dry and drab. We wanted something exciting and and beautiful and tantalizing. I remember I got my copy of it when I was away from my family mm. on a weekend seminar. Maybe I was I was speaking somewhere, and uh, so I was in the hotel, and I opened it up for the first time, and I had a whole bunch of crappy hotel food. Uh, <laughs> and I opened it up, and I was like, this is not good. I need this kind of food. And you just – it almost like you can look at it and feel nourished. So thank you. Thank you for writing that. Uh, I want to talk about you a little bit because you're unique in a lot of ways to other doctors who I work with. And um, your background into – it almost feels like you became an accidental OBGYN. I did. That's a funny way of putting it. But that's exactly what happened. <laughs> Tell me how it happened. You know, I think I've, I started off wanting to be a pediatric neurologist. Oh, really? I had no idea that I would – be going in the direction that I did. I was always interested in women's issues and women's health, however, I will say that. And then, you know, medical school rotations, they send you around and you get to try different things. And I had a surgical rotation and I just thought doing surgery was super cool and I wanted it to be a part of my future. And the rotation after that was OBGYN, and I rotated through the gynecologic oncology ward and really connected with some of the women, um, particularly with ovarian cancer. And so I was headed towards you know surgical oncology or gynecologic oncology, and OBGYN is just the way to get there. A stepping stone. Yeah. So <laughs> accidental is exactly how it happened. So in order, so because in order to do gynecological surgery, you first have to be an OBGYN. That's right. And but you never planned to practice obstetrics. I really didn't. No. When did that change? I got pregnant and I had a baby, and it blew my mind. Um, Where were you? Were you done with your schooling by then? No, I got pregnant in my second year of fellowship for gynecologic oncology. So I'd finished the four years of OBGYN residency, moved from New York to California, Mm -hmm. was in year two of a three-year fellowship at uh, Cedar sinai in UCLA, and I got pregnant. And yeah, my world changed radically. How was your pregnancy? I had a really beautiful pregnancy. Um, I was working pretty hard through my first pregnancy and, well, all of them. But, you know, I was working. I was active. um, But I felt great. I exercised. I ate as well as I could. And I began exploring the world of birthing and educating myself in ways beyond what I had received as a resident. It's interesting because you had one of the most expensive educations on birthing. <laughs> and it taught me very little of what I needed to know to actually have a baby myself. I wonder, could to be pregnant as somebody who's been through that much OB training, mm-hmm. um, you normally, you, you see healthy pregnancies, but you also see all the things that go wrong during pregnancy, during childbirth. Does that sit in your mind when you were pregnant yourself? So much. It does so much that I had to actively work to get those crazy chaotic images out. So I used actually a hypnotherapy technique of fear release because I had so many negative catastrophic images in my mind that I had to let go of them before I could feel comfortable with my own pregnancy and journey. So you did hypnotherapy while you were pregnant or or before you got pregnant? No, while. Wow. And that was my introduction then into hypnobirthing. So I did first a session of hypnotherapy and then hypnobirthing. Did Mm. you – I mean, you must have delivered a bunch of babies by that point. Hundreds. Right. And so when you deliver that many babies, you see everything. That's right. 
You see, I'm sure, faster, easier births, longer, harder births, births that become complicated. Mm -hmm. Did you have an image in your mind before you started hypnobirthing? Did you have an image in your mind on how you wanted to get your baby out? Well, funny enough, when I found my OBGYN, one of my first questions to her was, you know, I'm a busy surgical fellow and I'm considering getting pregnant. Would you do a primary elective cesarean section? I wanted to know if I could go straight to surgery. If you had that option? If I had that option, if she would do that for me. Oh, wow. What did she say? And she said, yes, if that's what you want, just like that. And Well, that, I think that's cool, though. Yeah. I mean, that's the way we should <laughs> yeah. do about everything, if that's what you want. If that's what I wanted, yeah. And funny enough, she was pregnant, too. Oh, no and kidding. And the two of us took the same hypnobirthing class together. Oh, really? Yes. Was had, it her first as well? It was her first, yeah. No kidding. Yeah. So, so we had that experience together. In fact, her son was born about, I want to say, four or six weeks in front of my daughter. So oh, we wow. were really pregnant together. That's really neat. Yeah. So that's a big leap going from wanting, I mean, did you want the primary elective C-section or you just wanted to know you had the option? I thought I wanted it at first. And the reason that I see now is that through my training, I had been so kind of programmed or afraid of all of these negative outcomes that could happen that I kind of wanted to skip all the risky part of a vaginal birth in my mind. That's how I saw it at that time mm -hmm. and just go straight to the surgery okay. and have it in a controlled environment with, you know, minimal variables. This is just, I'm telling you, the way I thought of it then. Right. And... So the vastness of my education to get to the place where I am now is tremendous. I think um, a lot, but it's a lot of my colleagues who are female OBGYNs think that same way. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, I think, interesting and also comforting. Some of our listeners will be in a choice where they don't necessarily want a cesarean but need to have one for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. And I think that there might be comfort in hearing you say, someone who had done a bunch of cesareans and also seen a bunch of vaginal births, to say that on some level would have been your first choice. That's right. As you know when it's going to happen, you roll in, everything seems sterile and clean and ordered and organized, and there's a predictable recovery process. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if it was something that was god-awful horrible, right. then you, you would never choose that. That's true. And so I think, to me, there's potentially some level of comfort hearing you say, you know, it's not, not only is it not the worst thing, there's some benefits to having one. Absolutely. And sometimes where it is absolutely life-saving for a baby or a mother. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, we're very lucky and blessed to have that option and for, for it to be a safe option. I just sometimes have patients who, who need to have one and they freak out. There's so yeah. much fear around it right. about all the things that can go wrong and how terrible it is. But you were coming in having, you know, seen both and done both and performed both for, for people. And in your mind, to some level, that was actually the more controlled, safe, easier way to do it. Yes, that's right. That's so, how I saw it then. So yeah. uh, things have obviously changed because somehow at the end you ended up doing hypno birthing. So, so does that mean the hypnosis, the fear release that you did was effective at getting rid of the concerns you had about vaginal birth? I think it was. I think I learned to separate all of the images of other people's stories and journeys from my own experience. And to really the essence of hypnobirthing is very much like a meditation practice. It's getting out of the worry and anxiety of, and future tripping of what might happen mm -hmm. and just coming into the moment of what is and releasing fear and just being. Mm -hmm. So once I started practicing that and also reading and looking a little bit more critically at some of the practices that were standard on labor floors, um, I came to look at birth in a different way. Mm -hmm. And how was hypnobirthing for you? Hypnobirthing was one of the most extraordinary things I've ever experienced in my life. I had no idea that it would work as well as it did, but I just seemed to be particularly 
I don't know, susceptible <laughs> or uh-huh. open, uh, open, <laughs> particularly open. Um, so it, I practiced it like a yoga practice daily from, you'll laugh at this, but six weeks of pregnancy on. Wow. <laughs> I, was, I went right away. You took right the class away. that early? Uh-huh. I didn't look remotely pregnant. And then I repeated the class two more times. I'm no an kidding. overachiever. That's yeah, <laughs> I'll say. And I, I just practiced it daily, and it became like a sleep meditation for me. I mean, I was able by the end to just, when I heard the first few, you know, chords from this piano music I used to listen to, just drop into this deeply relaxed state. And um, it was remarkable to me how changing the language of birth um, just changed my entire psychology of the experience. What kind of language? So uh, in you know mainstream obstetrics, we talk about things like contractions, and hypnobirthing changes that language to one of surges. Mm-hmm. And I don't know softer. if you just—it's it's softer. softer you you visualize a wave, writing it up, writing it down. Um, it's just kind of a calming mental image, as opposed to something that is seems painful or harsh. tight or harsh. Yeah. Correct. Um, we also talk about in obstetrics breaking the water mm-hmm. and that act of breaking. It's kind of scary. You're breaking something in my body? Like what are you doing? Versus the water's release in hypnobirthing. Oh, I see. Is, so, yeah. you know, the one's more violent and one's more natural. Yeah. And one's more done to you and one that you're doing yourself right. when you're ready. That's right. And hypnobirthing really just encourages you to trust your body and your baby mm-hmm. that um, that this is a natural process that is, you know, you can essentially get out of the way and l- let your body take over and it will happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, as opposed to the language of us needing to actively intervene as doctors, like I am your doctor, I'm going to deliver your baby. I said, well, actually, no, you are delivering your baby, right. you know. Um, so it's a very so different way of looking at it. it must have also changed the way you approached your patients. Yes. So at that point, I was still in my surgical oncology practice um, as I was pregnant. And even when I had my uh, baby, I was in my third year, which was a research year, so laboratory. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have – I mean, I was obviously on call and helping out and operating and things like that. But they weren't my own patients. I see. What really changed was my decision post-fellowship when I opened up my own practice to include obstetrics in that. That was something I never would have predicted. So that's the accidental OB. That's the accidental OB, that I had had this truly extraordinary water birth, you know. With your first? It was my first. I had a water birth. So that's different than the elective cesarean you were were going for. How did that end up happening? Um, I labored at home until I felt rectal pressure, which we generally tell patients can be, you know, a sign of uh, fully dilated cervix and ready to push. And then I went to Cedars and I um, checked myself. I was eight to nine centimeters. I wow! Right when yeah, you got there? Uh, yes. Yeah, and in no pain. It's the dream that people aim for. Yeah, yeah. It but just they happened usually. That way don't know how to check themselves. That's right. <laughs> I've done lots of cervical exams. And uh, I ran a bath in the bathtub in the room and got into it and told everybody to get out of the room. I wanted quiet and leave me alone. Did you know your baby was coming? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, I did. And, but um, they didn't know your baby was coming. They didn't. They put an external monitor f- through one contraction on mm-hmm. when I had arrived, just held it there, and I heard an acceleration that's the baby's heart rate going a little bit up uh-huh. r- right um, after the contraction, and it reassured me that everything was fine. So I had no monitoring at all, and I got into the bath, and I delivered her. Just you alone in the just bath? Just me. There was a wonderful... Midwife who was on the floor at the time, my OB was actually having childcare issues, which I find uh-huh. hilarious. Isn't <laughs> you know? So um, she didn't make the birth, but uh, there was a midwife who kind of quietly came over to me as I was in the bathtub and said, I just want you to know I've been present at many water births <laughs> and I'm here if you need me. And then yeah. she stepped back and she just let it happen. And it was an absolutely miraculous, blissful 
um, beautiful, painless experience. Wow. Yeah. That sounds really dreamy. It was. Uh, and probably like one of the only water births ever at that hospital. Yeah. I mean, they tried to say no, but the, I guess that was part of like me being a working doctor on staff there. You know, mm-hmm. I just said, well, I'm doing this. And, um, you know, I understand that my my experience was different because I, I was empowered in that way. You yes. know, I had years of training of, you know, giving orders and, you know, to people in those rooms. So I felt very comfortable just continuing that when it had to do with me. And I understand that that's something that most women as patients do not have that experience coming onto a labor floor. The empowerment. The empowerment, yeah. Right, to say that actually, I mean, that's the whole thing is even in our office, it's, mm-hmm. it's we work for you. That's right. And um, we can give you choices. We can give you options. You can opt into or out of anything you want to. Yeah. And um, I think even sometimes when we say that, mm-hmm. it still doesn't register. Yeah. You mean you're not going to tell Once me what while. I have to do? Yeah. yeah. Or someone will feel like, you know, they don't love something that's happening and they still don't say something. And I'm like, why wouldn't mm-hmm. you say something? And they just don't, they're not set up to feel like they have the choice. So, Right. Um, and anyway, in, in hospitals, it's it's from the time you get in there, it's like, we have to do this. You have to do this. You can't do that. And you're asking for permission. And the, the contrast between that and home birth, where everybody's asking the laboring mom or her partner, can mm-hmm. we do this? May we do this? That's right. it's, uh, it's very different. Wow. So that was a big uh, 180 on your part. Huge. <laughs> and then you started to practice obstetrics after that. I did because I was so grateful for what I realized, what I'd come to learn was the midwifery model, um, which is more of this relationship of, you know, client or rather than patient or um, I don't know how to phrase it, but it's it's just a softer, gentler, warmer, kinder relationship that develops. And um, I wanted to be in practice so that I could back up midwives mm-hmm. and be a support system for them, but also to try to give patients who might not have chosen to go that way more of a midwifery-style experience. And still be at a hospital. While still at a hospital and still having access to cesarean section if they needed one. We are going to take a quick commercial break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I have an incredible offer for you for my friends at Needed. An astounding 95% of women aren't meeting their omega-3 needs. Omega-3 fatty acids, especially DHA and EPA, are crucial for both mother and baby. They support brain and eye health, maternal mood, immunity, and much more. But it can be hard to get enough omega-3 from diet alone, especially during pregnancy when many people are averse to eating fish. And if you've ever taken a fish oil pill, you know just how unpleasant that can be. That's why I'm excited to share that my friends at Needed have revolutionized the omega-3 supplement with two different options designed specifically for mamas. An omega-3 powder that blends into smoothies and a pill option that tastes like fresh citrusy bergamot. Both are sustainably sourced from vegan algae, not fish. Both are great options for nausea and sensitive prone mamas. Needed's Omega-3 powder is delivered in liposomes, nature's very cool way of protecting and delivering Omega-3 just like in breast milk. Needed's Omega-3 is clinically proven to be five times better absorbed than fish oil pills. The powder is mild tasting and it pairs great with Needed's prenatal multi-powder and collagen protein powder in a daily smoothie. If powder isn't your thing, Needed's got you covered with those Omega-3 plus capsules, which have a pleasant citrus flavor. Needed is sharing in awesome pre-order discount just for my listeners buy two get one free on either omega-3 option powder or capsules you can stock up on either one or try them both with this exclusive discount use code three berlin the number three berlin at this is put three omega-3s in your cart use the code number three berlin at this is buy two get one free And your when we would co-see yeah. the same clients, mm-hmm. the same patients, uh, 
just things that doctors typically panic about, mm-hmm. they didn't leave your office feeling panicked about. Mm-hmm. Like even something as simple as going a few days past the due date. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas oftentimes patients will come into us, what can we do to get this baby out? I got a, you know, I got a hard deadline coming up. Right. Uh, your clients are like, oh, the baby's probably going to come before 42 weeks. Mm-hmm. And there's just so many other things like that that it almost feels like your hypnobirthing training that helped you kind of let go of all the fear in how you addressed your own pregnancy yes. also allowed you to be more rational and address the fear of what you'd, you'd bring into the relationship between you, the OB, and your client. Mm-hmm. Well. I really learned so much myself from the experience, and I think it helped me not only with my clients in obstetrics, but also with my cancer patients, and also as a parent, and also just as a person in life on this earth. So we should all do hip number thing. <laughs> well, you know, or some form of it, but I mean, really, how does fear serve us, you know? Um, fear is really this projection into the future of potential negative outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be prepared or you know, reasonable about risk, but that's very different from fear. Um, and really, if you just check in with yourself, am I in danger now? Am I you know, in pain now? You know, is my baby okay now? You know, usually the answer is, you know, yes, everything's okay. And if it's no, then you think, okay, so what are the things that I can do to be now okay. to be okay? And then you take those steps. But sitting here when you're actually okay, you know, letting your mind spin off in, into panic mode, it doesn't help anything. You do see that at a birth sometimes where yeah. someone wants an unmedicated birth, a home birth, let's say, and she does start to become fearful. Mm-hmm. And then a doula or a midwife will come over and say, what are you afraid of? And they'll yeah. say all these things that are, are not happening now. That's right. And so they'll bring them back to now and they'll, they'll say, oh, you're right. I am okay right now. Yes. So I think fear is a really important instinct to listen to that mm-hmm. protects us sometimes. Mm-hmm. But when it runs wild and takes over, it can do more harm than good. Absolutely. And techniques as simple as just coming into the breath can be immediately transformative in your entire psychological response. And then if you're looking at something like birth, which is, you know, counting on the parasympathetic nervous system and and smooth muscle, you know, working in a relaxed state, it's really important to get out of that panicky mindset and into breath, into relaxation, to let birth actually happen and proceed. And the way most labor floors are set up are just not that way. They're not I mean, parasympathetic we, stimulating. They are not. <laughs> they are bright fluorescent lights and loud noises and alarms and the over sized unisex, oh, uh, unisex hospital moo moo and the yeah. uh, the IV jabbed in your arm and we're gonna draw a tube of blood to find out your blood type. That's which, right. And sign all these documents and the yeah. smell of germicide versus lavender. Yeah, just not optimal. It's not very parasympathetic. No. no. So, you know, I quickly got pregnant a second time, I guess, which is testament to my great experience the (laughs) first time. And um, for my second and my third, I decided not to go to a hospital at all. So I I had home births for number two and three. And uh, how'd they compare for you? It was just, it, it was as magical as the first, but more so and more comfortable because I missed the annoying car ride to, to the, from hospital. the hospital. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and I didn't a better have to... better ex- tub. Yeah, better, bigger, better, cleaner tub. <laughs> Much cleaner, I assure you. And I, <laughs> I didn't have to, you know, tell strangers, no, don't do this. No, I don't want that. I was able to just have my own space and fully relax in my own home, which was marvelous. I can't imagine there are too many OBs that did home birth with their own babies. It's probably a small group on Facebook. You know, I need to find some. I have yet to meet one, but I'm dying to find one. That's interesting. If you know one, can I'll you I'll tell you what, I'll put it out. Us? Yeah. Yeah. Or if you're listening you know one, send me an email. Please. Yeah, I would really love to talk to another woman who's had this um, experience. That same experience. Yeah. I feel like in one of them you were swimming. All three of them I swam. In your, in the, yeah. in your pool? 
Right. I swam through all of the surges. I won't call them contractions, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, right. You know, I would stop during the surge and then just swim in between them, and it was really helpful for me. Um, water's always been very therapeutic for me, very relaxing, and the weightlessness of it, the coolness of it. I mean, it was just a magic. I love the weightlessness of mm-hmm. when I'm in water, but then when I get out, it's like a big reality <laughs> check. I'm like, oh, that was temporary. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was sad as could be when I heard you weren't going to be practicing obstetrics anymore. Uh, a lot yeah. of people were. It wasn't yeah. just me. Uh, oh, you're guilt tripping me now. <laughs> well, I also knew. I know you got tugged in both directions. It's really hard to be an on-call OB and also be uh, caring for women with gynecological uh, surgical needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't imagine. I'm I'm sometimes just at the pet store with my kids when I get called to a birth. I'm like, oh, how do I do both of these at the same time? Yeah. It must have been really difficult for you. It was. It was. And uh well, having right, having the patients in labor on call for OB and on call for women with you know end stage cancer that that was difficult in itself. But then having two three, kids of your own and then three a third. kids, yeah, it was it was overwhelming. Yeah, it I can was. imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're still doing great things for uh, women and also for women during and after pregnancy. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a little commercial break, but when we come back, I want to learn a lot more about the whole nine months, a week by week pregnancy nutritional guide. Uh, your book. Mm-hmm. Join us in just a few minutes on the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. <laughs> Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I am here with Dr. Jennifer Lang. And uh, you wrote a book, The Whole Nine Months, A Week-by-Week Pregnancy Nutritional Guide. It's a comprehensive nutritional guide that helps expecting mothers through every trimester and breastfeeding. The book is filled with information. It's filled with empowering messages, and it has over 100 recipes. And they're for a range of diets. You have vegan, you have vegetarian, you have gluten-free. It's like you've thought of everybody. We want it to be as inclusive as possible and as less intimidating as possible, particularly for people who didn't have a lot of experience in the kitchen. We want to make it easy, quick, no f- real fancy, expensive ingredients, just accessible. That's really thoughtful. What, how did the idea for this book come about? Well, I've been passionate about healthy food for as long as I can remember, and my own journey with food, I became a vegetarian. I grew up on a beef farm. Not many people really? know this. I yeah. did not know that. <laughs> I did. In Canada, my dad was a president of the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. Oh, wow. And, like major beef guy. And uh, so the editor of the national newsletter, all of this. So um, I, I became a vegetarian when I was 13. Oh, a rebel. Yeah, total rebel. And, and when um, you become a vegetarian, does your family, like, excommunicate you crazy. at that point? or No, I think they just thought I was challenging. And uh, Was your vegetarianism based on humanitarian reasons, or you just didn't like beef, or you thought it was unhealthy? You know, I actually remember the moment that it happened, and it was it was random. It was We were in the Caribbean, and my dad was pulling conch shells off the floor of the ocean and putting them into a dinghy. And it just seemed excessive to me and like all of these conch were going to die. So I I would reach over the side of the dinghy and put them put back. Them back? Oh. <laughs> and when he realized I was doing that, then, you know, we had the conversation. <laughs> but it was in that moment that I was like, I don't need to kill these animals to eat. I don't want to. I Yeah. So humanitarian, I guess, or yeah. ethical. I yeah. Guess I would At be. age 13. At age 13. Yeah. And uh, so that continued, and then I um, I lived in a vegetarian house in college where we cooked all of our own meals, and yeah, so I just had my my own journey through understanding healthy foods. Um, periods of my life where I've gone back to eating some meat, but um, you know, in most of my adult life, I've been mostly vegan. Mostly vegan. Mm-hmm. 
I was vegan for seven hours once. And, yeah, how'd it go for uh, you? It was tough. It yeah. was not easy. <laughs> the truth is I didn't think I ever could be vegan. Mm-hmm. I just thought I, I literally thought I would die. Um, yeah. I don't know why meat is like such a big – even not. I don't eat a ton of meat, but uh-huh. just some chicken throughout the day or fish. Yeah. Uh, but then I juiced for 120 days. Wow. Yeah. That's a long time. To I, exclusively juice or just like – Just juice. Wow. Juice, I mean, fruit juice and vegetable juice and nut milks. Yeah. And that was it. How'd you feel? Uh, I mean, well, the first 10, 12 days, really tough. Yeah. Headaches, withdrawal. Right. Like, I'm a sugar, sugar guy. Sugar withdrawal, oh, big time. it was hard. Yeah. Moody, I mean, moodier than usual. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by, like, day 13, 14, I felt so good. It was like a switch went off in my yep. brain. Um, I could think a lot clearer. I could remember stuff yeah. much easier. I had more energy. I slept better. I I just moved like lighter and easier. Yeah. And I did not think about food at all. Mm-mm. It was almost like, how am I going to get down these seven juices today? Right. I was not hungry all the way through because I, I was no only, idea you did this. I did wow. it. I was only going to do. I was going to do sixty days. Yeah. And I thought, let me just start with 30, uh-huh. and then if 30 goes well, maybe I'll do 60. And by 22, I was like, I am not stopping at 30. There's no way. Yeah. But then when I got to like 50, I, th- I said, I don't want to stop at 60. Mm-hmm. And so I just did some labs to make sure I was still like operating okay. And what was happening? I'm so curious. Like your serum lipid profiles, your blood sugar. I don't know. Your, uh, your I don't know. Weight. I went to my doc. My weight yeah. was shooting down. Yeah. I was on blood pressure. I, I was on blood pressure medication before mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And not only was on medication, but they kept giving me more and more and more. That's They're like, so oh, good. we're going to have to double this. Then they added another one to it. Yeah. Um, not even 21 days into it, mm-hmm. I had to stop. I had to cut my med- I had to cut one mm-hmm. first, like even 12 days into it. Mm-hmm. Then 21 days into it, I had to cut the uh, second one, the last one I was taking in half. Mm-hmm. And then by 35 days, I was off it altogether. Yeah. And what would happen is I would just stand up and get lightheaded. Mm. And I was like, why does that keep happening? I Your took blood my blood pressure, pressure so and low. it was so low. Yeah. And th- we were talking about a month. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know. I don't know if it's because I cut all the crap out of my diet or because mm-hmm. I added all the nutrition into my diet. It's both. Probably the combination mm-hmm. of both. But after that, I was med-free and my blood pressure was lower than it had been in my, in my teenage years. Mm-hmm. And um by the end, by 60 days, I didn't want to stop. I felt so good. Mm-hmm. Food was not a thought. Sugar was disgusting to me. But what what actually started happening is towards like 75, 80 days, mm-hmm. I would see my kids eating meat mm-hmm. and chicken, and mm-hmm. it just looked so fleshy all mm-hmm. of a sudden. And like you're eating an animal, mm-hmm. right? And I'm the guy who loves a steak. Mm-hmm. Uh by day 100, it was around day 100 where I started to feel the slowdown. Okay. And um, I didn't do any labs, I, any more labs to mm-hmm. see if there was something off, like the wrong way. But I just, I said, look, I had committed to 120 so by that point. So I said, let me just finish out my last two mm-hmm. or three weeks, mm-hmm. which went by fairly quick. But I, I felt low energy, like I would go to work out and not have the steam I needed to get through the workout. Yeah. And that's when I decided to reincorporate. Um, some solid food. Some solid food. But uh, we're talking about like like romaine lettuce was yeah. like my first three days. And I was like, wow, this is so yummy with nothing on it. Right. You can uh, really taste the food. Taste it and chew it. it. Yeah. It was really cool. And so I stayed vegetarian. I stayed vegan for a little while longer and vegetarian for months longer. Yeah. And eventually slowly started adding animal protein back into my diet. But it was incredible to me that I went that far and felt that good. Yeah. With no, I mean, I was vegan. Yeah. I mean, you did this longer than the seven hours you joked about. I mean, mean, most people will never do an experiment like you just did. But so I'm curious what happened. So you know that this state of health can exist for you. Yes. Med-free, feeling light, bright, optimal weight. With my kids, the incredible things I can do with my kids. Yeah. And not needing to take pills. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not drinking coffee, not drinking... Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, your story just makes my my entire case for me. Oh, but, good. I'm glad I, I mean, I if help. you just think of, right, pregnancy, okay, and so many of these mythologized, 
negative things that pregnant women have to deal with, like swollen feet, sore back, low energy, exhaustion, getting too hot. I mean, so much of it is related to diet. I can't even tell you. Really? Mm -hmm. Heartburn, gassiness, constipation, hemorrhoids, vulvar varices. I mean, all so much is related to diet. If you shift the diet, pregnancy becomes a lot easier. Are these principles that you applied to your own pregnancy? Absolutely. Because this is just how you eat anyway. Yeah, that's true. Because I, w I did see you during your pregnancies. Yeah. And um, gosh, I remember like the last month mm -hmm. you would come in and, and I'm like, okay, how are you feeling? What do you want to work on? And you're like, oh, I feel great. And yeah. <laughs> and and it was just so out of character because all day long I'm seeing people that don't feel great. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I remember that about you. I'm like, how did she do that? And I just thought you you put your mind in a space where you're going to feel – you tell yourself I feel good and positive and healthy. But you actually felt great. I did, and I truly believe my diet had a lot to do with it. You know, so your experience – when you're you're eating like living foods, really, like freshly juiced vegetables, fruits, you know, nut milks, things like this, you know, your system is so clean. You're not holding on to any extra, I'll just say it, crap. Mm -hmm. um, you are filled with all of the phytonutrients, the vitamins, the minerals to give you all the energy you need. You don't have, you know, anything that's slowing down your digestion, which is already slowed down because of the progesterone from pregnancy. Mm. You know, you're just lighter and brighter and more vibrant and you gain less weight. So you're not lugging around extra medicine balls of unnecessary fat. And, you know. That's what you're passing on to your little nugget. Yeah. And, by the way, you are setting up your nugget for a lifetime of health. You know, we know, and I talk about it in the book, um, we know from uh, rat laboratory studies, you know, feed a female pregnant rat a high-fat diet, her offspring is more likely to be fat regardless of what they eat from the moment they're born right. onwards. So it, this is called transgenerational epigenetics. We are actually setting up our gestating, you know, fetus for their health outcomes later in life. Hmm, that's really yeah. interesting. It's it's very interesting. And I just would love this information to get out to a broader audience because so many of the you know complaints and suffering that we hear, they don't need to exist. So many of the, unfortunately, you know, pregnancy or birth-related complications don't need to exist. Um, we could really avert so many issues by just focusing on diet and preventative health. So what are some of the underlying principles? Um, well, I would say a major underlying principle is that you do not need to eat for two. Oh. <laughs> um, so, you know. Not even dad? No, not even dad. <laughs> dad does not get included in that. <laughs> no. So we need much less calorically than, you know, the urban legends would say. You know, pickles and ice cream is really unnecessary. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so I did come home one time and mm -hmm. my wife had fallen asleep and there was Haganaz and, and, and a can of pickles. Yeah. And I was just like, did really? You take a picture? <laughs> oh yeah, we have a picture. Yeah. Well, so I'm not denying that cravings exist. Okay. Cravings are real. But what I talk about is cravings exist throughout life, right? They always exist. They exist, you know, when this is why food companies use their, you know, their marketing campaigns, their images, their um, – you're just bombarded with things, images that are trying to induce cravings. And usually it's for fat, sugar, or salt. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the three big ones that the food industry just knows, like – you know, touch that button and, you know, people will consume. Can't resist. Can't resist. So I offer in the book, you know, if you crave this, try that. Oh, that's and great. Yeah. And uh, 
there are truly healthy, truly nourishing foods that will hit those same notes but won't be dragging you down, won't be filled with sugar, which is inflammatory and affects your sleep-wake cycle and insulin roller coaster rides, so your mood, you know, so aren't filled with caffeine, for instance, um, which, again, is going to really deplete you and affect your ability to have a deep, nourishing sleep. So, you know, it's not like we have to deny ourselves. We just have to make smarter choices when we notice that the craving arises. Um, I don't know. I think that um, a major thing is people think, oh, I'm pregnant. I've got to eat, eat, eat. And in fact, you need zero extra calories in the first trimester Hmm. and only about 300 extra calories in the second and third trimester. Per day? Per day. And that's very little. If you think of what 300 calories is, it's like a cookie. Right. <laughs> you know? Oh, it, for me, 300 yeah. extra calories is 15 minutes on the treadmill. Yeah. Well, that's if you're trying to burn it off. That's what – I mean, yeah. when you – yeah, when I think of it, that's what pops in my head. Okay. Because when I look at a food, I'm like, hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that <laughs> worth 15 minutes yeah, on I don't a know treadmill? If, I don't know about that kind of time today. <laughs> Yeah. And it's, you know, a lot harder to burn it off than it is to put it in. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, most women, unfortunately, do gain more than the recommended amount of weight. And it's really not benefiting them. I mean, also, most women today take a prenatal vitamin. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you have to eat too much more to get the nutrition that you need. Ideally, you would get it from the foods that you're eating. That's true. And so if you focus on those foods being really nutrient-dense and not just empty junk foods, you are easily covering your bases. I mean, I think that people worry way too much about um, making sure that they get all the right nutrients. If you're essentially not eating junk and you're eating whole foods, real foods, and ideally plant-based foods. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying you have to eliminate all animal products, but you know, if plants form the majority of the intake, you're you're set. You've got it covered. You have your nutrition. You have, you have your, your nutrition. nutrients that you need. You do. Um, do vegans or vegetarians have to do something to make up for the fact that they don't have animal protein? No, as long as um, they're making sure that their diets are balanced, because you can be a junk food vegan as well. Oh, yeah. You know, Oreos. Well, that's like, what happened after mm-hmm. I juiced for a while. Uh-huh. I definitely became a junk food vegan. I realize yeah. vegan does not necessarily equal no, healthy. Even the things that are, like, just even how much potato and coconut and avocado I could eat, mm-hmm. um, even though they're inherently not unhealthy things, um, you know, too much of a good thing. That's right. And if if you're just focusing on them and then you're missing out on others. Yeah. You, as long as you're eating a varied diet, um, a wide variety of different things, you're going to be okay. Um, so many pregnant women are worried about getting enough protein. But if you just look at like the standard American diet, most Americans eat as much protein as is recommended in a, a pregnant or lactating woman. They already do. So most, the average American does not have to change their protein intake at all. So those of us who are not pregnant or lactating might cut half back it. on our protein <laughs> you might cut a little bit. It, put it in half and get to the recommended daily intake. Are there things as we get closer to birth nutritionally that you can do to get to sort of help your body get ready for that marathon? Absolutely. So um, there, there is some uh, literature written about gluten-free diet and birth preparation and actually making the tissues more uh, pliant mm. and um, less inflamed. So that's an interesting thing. I mean, I, be- I believe in eating uh, gluten light. Um, I don't have a like a gluten allergy, I'm not in that extreme. Like some people, they feel so, so, so sick if they have gluten. I'm not like that, but I think we could all do with a little less of it. Um, so eating gluten light around birth, um, eating more of a l- liquid diet like the vegetable juices and the fruit juices that you were doing is a great idea before birth. It just keeps the system really light and clean and helps you with some of the 
pregnancy-related symptoms Uh that tend to get more intense as you get further along in pregnancy. Um, Constipation, hemorrhoids, all of those being All the stagnation. All the stagnation things. Um, Yeah, and it also will help you, like cutting down on sugar and caffeine will help you get good quality sleep, which is so important as you're going into the marathon that a birth can be. We also see some of the amniotic fluid when it's uh, too high. Yeah. And then they cut out sugar that it tends to drop down lower. Well, so amniotic fluid is essentially baby pee. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the uh, symptoms of diabetes is that you pee a lot, right? Polyuria, polydipsia. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense to me that... You know, if you have a very high circulating sugar, that baby would be peeing a lot. Mm -hmm. Which, which, you know, when you put it that way, Mm -hmm. it says, what am I feeding my baby? I'm giving my baby excessive pee from sugar. Yeah. Well, so that's another thing that I emphasize in the book. Like, it's funny that once our baby comes out, we see this beautiful, precious, perfect thing, and we want to feed it like organic, you know, baby food, only the best, the most pristine, whatever. Well, I mean, I'm talking after the breast, of course. But when in utero, we don't necessarily have the same connection. So if you think about every morsel of food you're about to put in your mouth as like mainlining it to your baby, (laughs) think of that. You know, then you look at the Diet Coke a different way. You look at the carton of ice cream a different way. Like, would I feed the carton of Haagen-Dazs to my infant? And if the answer is no, then maybe you shouldn't be feeding it to yourself. Because it's going directly to your infant. You know, we are that connected. We are literally building their body cell by cell with the food we take in. So. That's still mind blowing. Yeah. After it is. all these years in this field, it's that's an just still mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about after, after birth? Mm-hmm. So, if you're breastfeeding, you do need to take in more fluids and more calories. About 500 extra calories a day for lactating woman, mm-hmm. and that's because you know milk is an incredibly fat dense, you know, nutrient dense liquid that is just leaving your body. You're giving away a lot of You're your gi- stuff. A lot of your calcium stores, a lot of everything. So mm-hmm. you really do need to be aware of uh, replacement. Um, and there are – but all of the same principles of eating healthfully during pregnancy apply after pregnancy and for the rest of your life. You know, I, I even comment in the beginning of this book, like I'm hesitant to call it a book about eating in pregnancy because the principles are the same that I would recommend to a cardiac patient, to a cancer patient, to, you know, somebody Or anybody who wants to not be a cardiac not patient. Be a, exactly. Or a cancer patient. Yes, to prevent all of these outcomes. You know, you're, it's, you're just very practical. In the first segment, you were talking about hypnosis and, you know, am I okay right now? Yeah. Then I'm okay right now, and not think about what's going to happen later. But that's something that all of us can apply to so many different areas of our lives, mm-hmm. and it's the same here with the nutrition. It's a it's a whole nine months, a week by week pregnancy nutritional guide. But it's really a, a guide for healthy nutrition for anybody who wants to be healthier and have more energy and less disease. Absolutely, and it's about mindfulness. <laughs> And it's about even with a craving check, you know, we were talking about cravings before. I have a whole section here, like check in with yourself. What's going on? Am I really tired? Mm-hmm. And that's why I think I need the Hagen dazs Like, yes. am I really thirsty? And maybe I need some water. You know, am I feeling lonely or angry or irritable and I'm turning towards food as a way of like comforting my emotions when really I could just give myself some self-care in other ways. Oh my God, the answer is yes to everything you just asked. Yeah, um, yeah. Being on call, mm-hmm. so I'll a lot of times go out to a birth at midnight or one o'clock, be there till five thirty, six, seven o'clock in the morning, yeah. go sleep in my car for an hour and then have a whole day of patience. Wow. So. Oh, um, hell yes. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm going off call pretty soon. Okay. Um, but that's what would happen. I would all day long. I would the second I get out from a visit with a patient, I'm like, oh, what am I? I'm hungry for something. I would just 
find myself walking down to the break room, opening up the fridge. I know there's nothing in there. I checked it nine times already today. Yeah. But it's I'm trying to eat my sleep. That's right. And you can't – it doesn't work. No. Sometimes so. we just need to shut the fridge and mm-hmm. go lie down and take I a nap. Shut my eyes. And shut your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I mean, it goes really fast. Our time is almost up. <laughs> I love talking to you, and you have so much valuable information to share. You're really unique and dynamic, although I'm going to find you. I'm committed to finding you more uh, medical doctors who have their babies at friends. home. Friends. Yeah, some Good. friends for you. Um, any final thoughts? Any take-home messages, final thoughts? That- um, I think – the the unifying thought or principle here between segment one and segment two mm-hmm. is to really honor your body and treat it with the respect and care and love that this absolutely miraculous, you know, vessel deserves. Um, you know, we can make babies. We can grow babies. So, you know, whether it's the food that we're choosing to put into this miraculous thing or the respect that we deserve when we walk onto a labor floor in terms of people asking permission to do things to us, you know, it's all tied in. If we approach, you know, life as um, respecting our body, respecting our natures, respecting our baby and um, autonomy and informed consent and all the things that you talk about in your work, I mean, we will be in such a, a better place, you know, as women and as a society. Thank you. Mm-hmm. This has been really informative for me. I feel better Good. than I felt an hour ago Yay. just talking to you. Yay. I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. And I haven't seen you in a while, so uh, it's, good to it's see you. really nice to reconnect with you. Um, at home, thanks for listening to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. If you have topics you'd like us to discuss, send your suggestions to info at informedpregnancy.com and then visit us online for our blog and lots of other pregnancy and parenting media at informedpregnancy.com. I got a whole lot of questions for you. This kid's